Who's got a beard that's long and white? Santa's got a beard that's long and white. Who comes round on special night? Santa comes round on special night. Special night, beard that's white. Must be Santa, must be Santa, must be Santa, Santa Claus. Welcome to the annual Michael and Us Holiday Spectacular. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage, we actually just finished a big uh, argument because I, of course, wanted to call it the Christmas Spectacular. We have this argument every year, but Will feels we have to be quote-unquote inclusive. It's such a touchy topic these days. It's a bit controversial. You never know You never know where the lawsuits will come from. Look, I'm, I'm all for Christmas, don't get me wrong, but certain people out there, you know. Well, it's not called a holiday tree, I'll tell you that much. Luke, it's been a week since the last episode. Last episode uh, ended on a bit of a cliffhanger. Um, how are you holding up? Uh, I've been better, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I'm going to talk about, uh, there were some questions on the Patreon about, uh, you know, are we going to talk about the British election? Uh, yeah, we will. We're going to do that properly. I think uh, we're not going to do that in this, the uh, the Christmas episode. This it's is... a time for holiday cheer, for, <laughs> you know, good goodwill among men. I, I also, I just don't think that um, a Britain discussion is very compatible with the, uh, the movie we watched this week, which was a real gem in the kind of genre of, uh, you know, people remember our episode on... Uh, Kirk Cameron's Saving Christmas. Yeah, classic. These these evangelical films that apparently get theater releases and are very popular uh, and are just heavy-handed as hell. This was another one, another one of those, and it was a particularly good one, and we'll we'll come to it uh, in a bit. Before we get to the movie, I want to ask you about this this club that I just joined called the Lincoln Project. It was marketed to me as a place for, you know, thoughtful conservatism. So I thought... And that's know, what you're into. Yeah, it's like, you know, I just wanted to, you know, trade and exchange ideas with you, the You've best always been brightest. very into the conservative intellectual tradition. Yeah, I, you know, me and Ross Douthat were on uh, Buckley's boat together that time. <laughs> and ever since then, you can't get me away from it. You've, you've been a Burkean since that fateful day. But I was I was telling you about this, and you seem to regard my new my new club, this new organization that has given me meaning, that has provided structure to my life at last. You seem to regard it with a rather jaundiced eye. <laughs> so people haven't seen it. The New York Times had this thing. Uh, I was making the rounds earlier this week. I wrote an essay uh, for Jacobin about it, which uh, should be out soon. Uh, this thing called the Lincoln Project involving Steve Schmidt and a bunch of other Republican operatives. Uh, you might have seen the headline. It was something like, we're all Republicans and we oppose Trump. Yeah. And this is kind and of... this is all of them. <laughs> They're all together. And this is this is kind of the latest incarnation of well, what might be called the Never Trump conservative movement, which be, you know began, uh, as you'd expect, back in kind of 2015, 2016, and used to be a lot uh, bigger. I mean, institutional conservatism was officially against Trump. All of the kind of house publications and intellectuals, you know, uh, were lining up against him. They, along with American liberalism, were trying to cancel him over and over and over again and just falling flat on their face every single time. Mm -hmm. There's not that much to say about the Lincoln Project because it, it's not really clear what it is. Yeah, what what is their... Uh, do they have a project exactly? What is their, what is their prescription? How, and they, how do they differ policy-wise? They, they want to be... Their prescription is that you should be against Trump, even if that means you know, supporting the odd Democrat. But as far okay. as I can tell, that's about it. And like the, the whole thing is just like 20 paragraphs about how 
national honor is at stake and the president's character reflects part of the nation's character. So it's I, I suppose they care very deeply about the rule of law, right? There's a lot of stuff about a lot of rule of law stuff yeah. in there. Um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that's not in there, as I mentioned <laughs> in the article. It's always interesting to see what these people have a problem with. But the Never Trump conservatives have always been interesting to me because they're absolutely everywhere. You know, if you go to a, an Indigo or whatever, there's always at least one book from one of these guys, uh, you know, in the Heather's picks, you know. Have you seen that one that's by an anonymous member of the Trump administration? It's just got a white cover and it's like, you know, it has some title like A Plea for Our Fathers or right, something like that. Right, and, it's, right. and it's by anonymous. Right, right. You know? Well, and, you know, so was, uh, the David Frum book was a was a big bestseller, although I'm really not convinced that anyone who bought it actually read it or mm-hmm. I I mean, I actually have read it. It's like so, uh, it's so outwardly conservative that parts of it should have offended its mostly liberal audience, but uh, somehow, uh, somehow did not. Um, I wonder what that says about the mostly liberal audience. <laughs> but so these guys are, are everywhere. Um, you know, they're all over MSNBC in particular. And what's so amazing about that is that they don't represent a real political constituency at all, mm-hmm. right? Th- there's not a, a popular base for never Trumpism, but there is a there is an institutional base for it. So that's why these guys are, are kind of simultaneously everywhere and nowhere. They're everywhere in the sense that you can't turn on a TV screen without seeing them. And they're nowhere in the sense that their politics is not actually a real thing. Mm-hmm. That, like they're a, they're a weird sect of Republican professionals whose audience is, you know, ex- almost exclusively liberals. Mm-hmm. I was reminded of that great issue of the National Review, the Against Trump <laughs> Yeah, issue. I revisited that. Yeah, for, yeah, yeah, great fun. I seem to remember that being an issue that it was mostly liberals who were excited about. <laughs> it was like, you know, Glenn Beck, David Frum, who else was in it? Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, you was know, Rand Paul in there? I don't, th- I don't think he was in there. There, there are lots of people that, frankly, you, the, I mean, it's kind of like these are the heavy hitters of conservatism. But frankly, unless you're like into reading publications like the National Review or the Federalist, you wouldn't have heard of most of them. It would be interesting to know how it was received by the readers of those publications at the time, because, I mean, it was emblematic of you know the official conservative movement mostly telling the base of the republican party don't you dare nominate this guy we're against this they mostly attacked him from the right that's what's so amazing about this you go back and read it and uh mostly what they're concerned about is that trump can't be trusted to follow through on uh his you know he doesn't have the right conservative (laughs) credentials so i'm going to read here from there was this is a huff post article from 2016 here are the best things the national review said about trump and his lame response conservative magazine published an entire symposium bashing the Republican presidential candidate. So the general critique, uh, Trump is a philosophically unmoored political opportunist who would trash the broad conservative consensus within the GOP in favor of a free-floating populism with strongman overtones. God, what a shame that would be. And they go on, he says, uh, he and Bernie Sanders have shared more than funky outer borough accents. Wow, I'm liking him more and more. Yeah. Uh, this is what they said about his immigration plan. Trump piles on the absurdity by saying he would re-import many of the illegal immigrants once they had been deported, which makes his policy a poorly disguised amnesty and a version of a similarly idiotic idea that appeared in one of Washington's periodic comprehensive immigration reforms. So they're basically saying like, he'll be like Obama, he'll deport people, but then he'll also, you know, like some, somehow give some of them amnesty or something. He's not going to build the wall strong enough. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that that is what, what it is. What, what is Trump's allegedly lame response to all this? Uh, it's a tweet. It's two tweets at the bottom uh, where he says, 
National Review is a failing publication that's lost its way. Its circulation is way down with its influence being at an all-time low. Sad! And then he <laughs> follows it up. The late, great William F. Buckley would be ashamed of what has happened to his prize, the dying National Review! Exclamation mark. Yeah, well... Definitely lame, uh, definitely lame response. I'm kind of hoping that the Democratic primary goes exactly the same as the Republican one did so that Mother Jones can publish their <laughs> Against Bernie issue. Yeah, featuring Ben Dreyfus. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it would be like... Paul Krugman on the economy. It would be, be like Paul Krugman on why single payer, even though he prefers it, is a is a pipe dream that will never happen. Alyssa Milano on why <laughs> Bernie's bad on gender. Roxanne Gay on why he's bad on race. Yeah, maybe this is when David Frum finally solidifies his place within the liberal e- ecosystem, and you know he writes about how Bernie's opposition to the Iraq War was bad. <laughs> But yeah, actually, it's interesting. Something has been going on the last few weeks where, you know, certain kind of uh, prominent liberals you've seen on Twitter, how they've they've started to kind of accommodate themselves to the reality that Bernie Sanders very well may win. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens, because I suspect that there's going to be a full-blown sort of crack up in American liberalism that's going to be the sort of liberal equivalent of what happened with, uh, with Trump. There's been a general consensus that he's well-positioned for the first few primaries. Yeah, and and he's well-positioned enough that if he's able to get some early victories, his momentum may become unstoppable. California's earlier this year, so if he wins that. So what what are they saying? Well, you know, Paul Krugman had a thread where he was trying to reassure himself that you know, he's going to have to work with the, the moderates of the party. So he can't he can't do uh, loyalty purges the way Corbyn did, oh, which, God. of course, is... Oh. I know we weren't going to talk about Britain, but yeah, it's yeah. great that you can be a Nobel Prize winner and just make stuff up. Like, that 100% did not happen. In mm-hmm. fact, Corbyn probably should have purged his critics, and he didn't. <laughs> so, really annoying. But But then he ended that thread by saying, like... You know, anyway, uh, all of these people would make, you know, better presidents than the current, you know, you should be happy to vote for any of them or whatever, which is like, that's the first stage of, of, it was so funny how he was clearly just talking to himself. That's the bargaining stage. Yeah. yeah. After denial. (laughs) You remember that plaque that used to be on the courthouse wall? All of the Ten Commandments in it? Sure. Remember that great big Christmas tree used to be on the courthouse lawn? Yeah. Whatever happened to Christmas in this town? I mean, I've been sitting around here watching it disappear just like everybody else. <laughs> Nobody says anything. Did, did you ever think that you'd see the day when people were offended by a cross in public? Yeah. Christian's right. Folks, I'm told it's Christmas. Uh, it is a national holiday. There's no avoiding it. But... I take the law very seriously, and uh, there's no avoiding it. The law says that uh, Christmas is not allowed. And that's why I made sure to remove all of the tinsel and all of the crucifixes and the, the little manger scene that Luke put up here in the Gore Lieberman studio. <laughs> yeah, usually the Gore Lieberman studios are this time of year just you know, adorned with the images of our Lord. But uh, we, we did have to take... Well, they were taken down against my explicit objection. I saw the food bank, uh, you know, the with, with all the canned goods in it that Luke had set up for, you know, the tour groups that come through <laughs> the Gore Lieberman Studios that they could make a donation. And I said, get this fucking shit out of here. <laughs> I picked up every can and I opened it and I threw it all on the floor and I said, this will not stand. Okay, so the movie we watched this week, absolutely amazing. 
amazing. It was and great. what's great is you can watch this movie yourself. Uh, I've already forgotten what it was called. It's called Last Ounce of Courage. Okay, so this movie is on YouTube. If you search Last Ounce of Courage, you too can have the absolutely wonderful experience that we did. You know, it's not a good movie. I think that should be obvious. But uh, unlike a lot of the filth we watch, this one genuinely really fun sitting. <laughs> God, where do God? There's so much to talk well, about. Where do we even begin? We got to do it brick by brick. Let's <laughs> let, let's just start with what, the, what was what was great was we chose this movie because Will said it was a Christmas movie, and then you know the the opening credits had absolutely nothing to do with Christmas. It was a guy riding a motorcycle with a big American flag <laughs> flying behind it, uh, and just talking about you know how freedom isn't free and stuff. And Will's like, I'm just going to double check that this is a Christmas movie. <laughs> well, if there's if there's one thing that Jesus fought and died in Nam for, it's, it's our freedom. Yeah. So so uh, I think I, something else I said earlier in the movie is there's a what you see is a bunch of clips of like a, a guy growing up and then he joins the military and then you see him saying goodbye to his uh, parents and his pregnant wife as he goes off to war. And I was like, is this going to be a movie about how Christmas is the troops? <laughs> and let me tell you, we were not disappointed. <laughs> well, unfortunately, that young man does die in the line of duty. We but... never really meet him. He's only he's you know, he's only kind of included in these flashbacks and uh, rather hilariously kind of camcorder footage. He's uh, maybe this is this is a spoiler. But uh, towards the end, when we see, you know, his final recording, He's talking about the importance of freedom. He's making like a home movie, you know, in a jeep or something Let's in the not middle spoil of the battle. The, the twist quite yet. Okay, well, <laughs> well, we'll come, we'll come to that. Uh, the the protagonist of the film is that character's father, mm. Mayor Bob Revere. <laughs> so the played film, by Marshall R.T. It's great because uh, so after the sort of uh, you know prelude at the at the start, we see him going off to war, and then you know you find out that he's he's died. It cuts uh, fourteen years into the future, and uh, the main character. Uh, who's his father, appears to be working at a pharmacy. And there's a very weird scene where some bikers come in and you think they're going to, like, hassle him or whatever. They're going to rough him up and rob the store. But one of them has been wounded. And he, I guess, somehow, as a pharmacist, like, treats the wound. He's very he's very kind. What it's supposed to say is, listen, this is mm -hmm. a nice middle-class man, but he's open to all sorts of people. He's not right. he's not those Christian bigots you hear about. That's right. And then, and then uh, at some point, maybe 30 or 40 minutes into the movie, the film just informs us that he's the mayor. This we is may never... be talking over some man, of the revelations. He, okay, if you watch this movie and there is anything to do with him being the mayor before he's just suddenly referred to <laughs> in the middle of a newscast as the mayor tell us we'll eat humble pie i don't think so <laughs> i think the movie just just decides that he's the mayor because they probably filmed it chronological everything about this movie is so literal i bet they filmed it chronologically and like wrote it you know as they were filming it or something and then realized that it didn't really make sense and they needed to have him like you know, atop the city's civic structure for the thing to work. I am going to waste some time outlining the various uh, personal dramas that take place in this family's <laughs> life. His soldier son's widow, mm -hmm. after 14 years in California, comes back to this small town in middle America somewhere with her now 14-year-old son, who's, you know, kind of a cool dude. He's got a Justin Bieber haircut. He does, a, he does a wacky handshake. Yeah. And I thought that this kid was going to be like a wayward youth or something. But, yeah. But he isn't really. No. He goes to the local school and he gets in trouble with the principal because he's brought the most dangerous weapon of all in his locker. It's the Bible. It's the, it's the Gideon's Bible that he's been carrying around since he was little. 
and the principal, the cock principal, <laughs> informs our hero, Mayor Revere. There's a Although he, I don't think he's the mayor at that point yet. He's Do- just he's just Bob. D- doesn't matter. He's he, he's always he's he's the mayor in the sense that like Ozzie Davis is the mayor of the block and do the right thing. <laughs> The principal informs him that, well, you know, there's a rule on the books. We can't, we can't have, it's very controversial. We don't want to get sued. And Bob is like, well, God, what, what is this town come to? He goes in the, his, but although he's, he's accepting it. He's, he's like, well, I guess, you know, rules is rules. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, he's, he's like, like, sorry, son. You yeah. know. He's, he's a traditional thoughtful conservative. That's he right. believes in the rule, rule of, of law. law. Yeah. So he goes out into the hall and the janitor who happens to be his Vietnam buddy says, although we him, don't know this yet. Not yet. Mm-hmm. He says, uh, Bob, th- there, there ain't no rule on the book. Yeah. And then he's just like. What? He goes I love back. I love the presentation of this. It's like it's like uh, his his fiery American Christian soul was okay with you know he was like all right you know there's a rule and I I I respect the you know you don't you don't disobey the law and then just some random janitor's like oh yeah there's no rule and then he's he's like all right I'm going to war. Rusty, is there an actual rule that says you can't bring a Bible in school? Well, no. But I don't want any trouble. You can't take any chances these days, Bob. Everybody's looking for a reason to sue us. So the family is also watching Fox News, and they they see a Bill O'Reilly broadcast. And in the end credits, Bill O'Reilly is credited as a cast member. Courtesy of Fox News. And Bill is, you know, doing his shtick, War on Christmas. Can't, Can't even say the word Christmas anymore. And they're all looking at each other, and it's like, you know what? Have you noticed that there are no decorations up anymore? <laughs> what, what I like is early in the film, there are all these scenes where, because he goes around, he starts telling, you know, his colleagues and just all his friends, the the dad, he starts telling them, uh, we're going to bring, we're going to have the best Christmas ever this year. And there's all these scenes where people are in attics or rooms where they actually have all these Christmas decorations, but they've just forgotten about them. And they're, as you put it, they're kind of unearthing them like, like like they're like they're opening up the ark of the covenant. <laughs> I was reminded of the scene in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang where the family lands in the mysterious Eastern European country and they're walking around and all the townspeople are looking at them afraid and they realize, "Wait a minute. There are no children here because the children have been outlawed." <laughs> it's like that, but it's Christmas. So the mayor decides, "You know what? We're going to we're going to pull out these these dusty relics because he becomes well versed on what the law is." You know, you can't you can't have certain things on certain property. You know, all all religions are able to display their things on private property. Blah 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 blah. blah. And he's like, well, okay, there there ain't nothing in the rule books that says I can't hang up a Christmas tree in the town square. Mm-hmm. So he does just that, and he immediately catches the ire of exactly one person, who is the ACLU, the out of state ACLU yeah, yeah. attorney. It's, it's it's presented as like DC foreign agitation, basically. And I am so thrilled to tell you guys that the ACLU attorney is played by former football superstar turned black exploitation movie legend Fred Williamson. Obviously, your mayor is not fully cognizant of the statutes that pertain to the separation of church and state. Can you remember all that? Look, before this gets elevated to a level which I'm sure the mayor would like to avoid, Tell him that I fully suggested that he offer a public apology to the community and take down those religious decorations. And we will pretend this never happened. 
if you know anything about Fred Williamson, you'll know that his nickname on the football field was the Hammer, and he plays a character here named Warren Hammerschmidt. That's a little <laughs> Easter egg for the fans. And you've interviewed him. Yeah, I talked to him for the the Torontoist uh, some years ago. I, I love Fred Williamson. I, I assume it was about the war on Christmas and how you know he's like I may have played the the antagonist in this film, but I'm I'm all in for Christmas. Yeah, Fred said I don't normally talk to media, but you know only only right wing media, so I'm I'm comfortable with you. <laughs> But so uh, the, one of the other plot lines, there's really two kind of plot lines here. There's the adult plot line where the dad uh, just turns into the mayor halfway <laughs> through the film. Uh, he's just going around and single-handedly decking the halls, you know. And there is a robust media ecosystem in this <laughs> yeah. small town. Every every event that happens, you see on the news. There's only, there's only a handful of locations, but one of the devices the film uses is there's like a local bar that the whole town uh, and the bikers as well, they hang out at it. Every 15 minutes, there's a scene where there's something on the news and it cuts to the bar. And then somebody in the bar is like, everybody shut up. The mayor's on TV. <laughs> They're Bob, talking about yeah. Christmas again. <laughs> Bob Revere is constantly leaving his house and there's a crowd of 20 or 30 yeah. journalists with cameras and microphones. There's more, there's more reporters in this town than there are city councillors. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Which is hilarious because, you know, normally in a town like this, you may have one community newspaper that's closing. Uh, well, you, you, worked you, know, at a, you worked at a community newspaper and you were one of two beat reporters. Yeah, there were actually, when I was there, two community newspapers in the small town, uh -huh. which is unusual. But the one I worked for was The Independent and the other one was owned by Metroland, which is oh, the man. big organization. It's a real David and Goliath most type of situation. Well, in fact, that one closed wow. because the ones that are owned by big city companies they are much more vulnerable to closing because some bureaucrat somewhere looks at his balance sheet and says, oh, well, we don't need this one. We're only making a certain amount of profit here. <laughs> well, this town clearly has more than two. Yeah. This, they, they have a 24-hour news network, it seems. <laughs> so so in addition to this adult storyline, uh, and we'll tell you the conclusion of that in a moment, there's the kid's storyline. So even though it seems like the 14-year-old boy, uh, you know, whose, whose father is killed in the sort of prelude of the movie... Even though it seems like he's going to be a wayward youth, it's more just that he's kind of forgotten about his roots. And he quickly mm -hmm. rediscovers them, his, his Christmas roots, mm -hmm. uh, where, where he came from. And so uh, it, it turns out that there's, uh, you know, after he gets his Bible taken away by the principal, it turns out that there is a Christmas play or, or a not so Christmas play, a oh, winter man. play that is being put on at the school. And all the, the kid characters are participating in it. And this is one of the most incredible things about this movie. The one thing that always stands out about these conservative films is they have absolutely no subtext. This is maybe like the 10th or even the 15th thing like this that we've watched. It's probably the third or fourth we've watched from this film company. There's absolutely no subtext. So the, the play is some kind of like, it's called like... A Winter Space Odyssey. That's right. A Winter Space Odyssey is the name of the play. And it's some kind of thing where they talk about... And it's meant to stand in for kind of, th this is what happens when you replace, you know, the real Christmas rituals with the heathen secular ones. You're going to have kids talking about science and, and supernovas and stuff like that. And they're kind of dressed as these like, I don't know, interstellar angels or something. They seem to use elements of the Christmas story or, or language right. or iconography from it, but right. also stuff that sounds a bit like Scientology. Well, I think, yeah. So I think the implication is that the, it, you know, it's supposed to be a play that's, it's nevertheless, it's not Christmas, but it's still 
like a sort of origin story. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so it's like this is this is what happens when you place you know Bible study with secularism, basically. All right, cue the aliens. Behold, Zindor, the star in the east. It will guide us. But Zondor, we are but space aliens who have traveled from afar. Will the king accept us? Not to fear, Zindor. It has been foretold that the king will be born this night on planet Earth. And he will accept all who seek him and find him. But how do we know it is the true king? The supernova will light our way to the pot of gold. And we will find the king just as predicted in the scrolls of Plutonia. And my favorite part of this subplot is that the director of the play is clearly gay. Right, so they, they the film has so little subtext uh, that they had to make the theater instructor who's, you know, who's responsible for this heresy, like a really homophobic stereotype. And late in the movie, he gets actually locked in a closet. Unbelievable. Now, Mayor Revere's attempt to bring Christmas back to the town. I love that his name is Revere. Uh, It's a real real minute man. It's met with nothing but support and enthusiasm from the town. Well, okay, this is what is absolutely incredible at this movie. The whole movie is about how there's this war on Christmas, and yet there's almost no evidence that this war on Christmas is going on. The, The sole examples of it are the principal who takes away, you know, the Bible. And he's not even, you know, a committed ideologue. You know, he's not actually anti Christmas. He's the sort of institutional middle manager who's supposed to be a kind of stand-in for like, these are the cowards that, you know, they run our schools and they're afraid of like liberal judges. Freedom dies when good men do nothing. That's right. So the only people that we actually see throughout the course of this whole movie that are against Christmas are the, the theater instructor, Hammerschmidt, the ACLU guy, the principal who's not even, you know, actually anti-Christmas. And then there's one scene where there are like four protesters outside of City Hall protesting around the tree. Hammerschmidt. And yeah. it's clear he's brought them in from out of yeah, state. Yeah, that's right. Outside agitators. And besides that, everyone in the town seems fully on board with Christmas. We, we hear about how there are religi- other religious minorities that need accommodating, but we never see any of them. Yeah, and Bob Revere's position is, hey, if you want to put up your menorah, by all means, you know, I, I support that, but I'm also allowed to put up my Christmas tree. Early in the movie, it's mentioned that nobody decorates their houses anymore, and I guess the implication is that they'd like to, but they're all afraid of this ambient sense that they're going to be sued if they put up Christmas lights. And we see the kids in the attic, and they're digging up these forgotten Christmas decorations, and one of them pulls out a big sign that says, Merry Christmas. <laughs> and and she says, are you thinking what I'm thinking? <laughs> Let's do it. And then the next shot is their house, just with Christmas lights up and a Merry Christmas sign. And they're sitting there, you know, really happy about this, presumably thinking just, they've really triggered the limbs. Waiting, waiting for Antifa to show up in hordes. And it's funny because I've seen displays like that just earlier today as I was walking along Bloor Street Literally, in Toronto. Literally, the street I live on has Christmas trees. I feel like this movie doesn't really take into account the fact that if you go into any shopping mall, you go into any drugstore, you go into anywhere, it's full of Christmas paraphernalia. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because business owners love it because they're selling stuff this time of year. <laughs> But so I think that this paradox, that there's a war on Christmas, but we never really see it, actually gets, uh, it's, it's very revealing about what this film is doing and kind of the place it comes from. It is the quintessential moral majority narrative, which basically holds that, you know, as the phrase moral majority suggests, most people feel this way. Mm-hmm. You know, most real Americans, a majority in fact, are white Christian patriots. But their traditions, their heritage, 
uh, their values are being suppressed. They're being suppressed by a vocal minority that has taken hold of, you know, the legal system, activists judging, uh, you know, the politically correct ACLU, that kind of thing. And that's why the film can't actually show us, like, in order to represent the town and the people in it, it has to show that everyone's actually on board with Christmas. It can't show us any group or constituency in the town that's actually opposed to Christmas, Mm -hmm. which makes the whole thing a bit ridiculous. But what if it did? You know, (laughs) what if you had a Muslim or a Jewish character who said, I'm actually not comfortable with a nativity scene at City Hall? The movie can't show that because it would be too unpleasant or too well, difficult to it, it, depict. And it would, yeah, it would, the, the film would then have to concede that, like, uh, actually, we would never let anybody, like, the people who made this film and the characters in it would never want, right. like, a city hall to display anything other than, you know, Christian Christmas related stuff. Bob Revere is able to say, hey, put up your menorah if you want it, but it's purely academic in the world of this movie. <laughs> But so all of this is tied in extremely awkwardly with the idea that somehow the uh, the son who died in the war and also the father who fought in Vietnam were doing it to save Christmas in some way. So basically by saying happy holidays, what you're doing is slandering the troops. Maybe we should get to the climax of the film, which is the last half hour of the movie. It's a series of climaxes. The mayor has, I guess, stepped down from office because of a series of scandals. There, there are questions about his military record. He basically gets where does swift, that where does that come from? He gets swift boated, which is amazing. In fact, he is a hero, but never mind. But now that he's simply a private citizen, he's able to take the law into his own hands. He becomes, in his own words, a freedom fighter. And what does freedom fighting look like? Well, he takes his Jesus saves crucifix, a big, a big cross that he's been hiding in his attic. He drives up to City Hall, he climbs to the roof, and he starts uh, pulling up with a, with a big rope, the, the cross. That so, says, Jesus saves. So that he, the, the emotional <laughs> climax of the movie. and one of, the, one of the most absurd scenes I've ever seen in a movie. And his grandson comes up and helps him, and then one of the bikers comes up and helps him. And then, and then the town's many media networks, <laughs> it cuts to them, and they're like, uh, shocking scenes at City Hall as the former mayor stands atop the roof. As an old you know, guy <laughs> drags across up to the top of a building it's great because if you take a step back from from like if you take a step outside of you know the the sort of grammar internal grammar of the movie where this kind of <laughs> makes sense the scene that it's depicting is absolutely ridiculous just this like loony, lunatic old guy like screaming about freedom and refusing to get down from the roof of city hall or wherever he is right because he gives his chaplain-esque speech <laughs> at the top of city hall where he's like this this fight this isn't about christmas this isn't about jesus it's about freedom it's great because the language he's using like and yeah the sun comes up on the roof and he's like go back it's too dangerous it's like (laughs) you're not you're not under artillery fire like (laughs) i was actually really hoping that fred williamson would come along and like have a bazooka and shoot him and that way he would become a martyr for christmas well one of the things that's unresolved is the tree gets torn down by like a truck uh, with like a chain on it or whatever uh, a vig- vigilante A vigilante style. who I think it's strongly hinted is the ACLU guy. The ACLU are the real terrorist folks. But then uh, the movie is so heavy handed it has to show his feet literally like 
crushing the baubles. <laughs> yeah, and after that <laughs> happens, the media shows up at, at Bob yeah, Revere's house. they're just at his house moments after this happens. Sir, sir, do you have so, any Mr. Mayor, what's your reaction? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, he gets arrested after giving this speech and his, his act of domestic terrorism. He's let off with handcuffs, but the whole crowd is cheering him on. The, the entire town is cheering, and it's great because uh, uh, a side character, an underdeveloped side character who's like, I guess a friend of the... It's not really clear, honestly. This movie's really bad at, at uh, explaining... Is it his wife? Well, no, but there's the thing with the, the cop, right? Who's the... who's Oh, yeah. Who is courting the widow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, and I guess had some... Like, was a friend of theirs before the son died or something. But he's the cop, and he has to arrest the dad. And everyone's like, what are you doing? And then the dad's like... It's 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 okay. He's doing his job or whatever. Right. Oh, by the way, Bob Revere has been haunted by a ghost through the whole film, who I think is his lost Vietnam buddy. Right? I, I, I think it's we, hard to tell. I think we were talking through the part where we find out exactly who the ghost was, but I think it's his Nam buddy. And then at the end of the movie, it's like he waves at him and he and waves his, back. His Nam buddy is in prison. Yeah. Uh, we thought that the harrowing uh, cross raising scene was going to be the the finale, <laughs> but there's a second finale. Uh, there are three. There Excuse are two me. more finales. So so. Uh, uh, the dad is in prison, but a, a mysterious figure appears who's, you know, I guess, yeah, his his long lost Vietnam buddy or whoever the hell that's supposed to be, who turns out to not really exist, but gives him like a walkie talkie with which he he lists, he's able to listen to the performance of the uh, the winter play at the school. <laughs> Now, uh, if the lib principal and the theater instructor thought that they were going to get to to take the Christ out of this play, <laughs> the, the 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 children made sure they had another thing coming. So the children, uh, how exactly do they prank this? They start singing "Silent Night, Holy Night" because the lyrics have been replaced with "Silent Night, Wintry Night," right. and they've taken out all the references to Christ and Christianity. But they lock the gay theater director in a closet, uh-huh. and they all take off their costumes and reveal the nativity scene costumes underneath and they enact the nativity scene but then it gets even better because bob revere's grandson gets on stage and said you know until a few days ago i didn't (laughs) understand the meaning of christmas but now i really do and i want you to see it and they pull down a screen and they start playing a video that his father shot when he was in iraq (laughs) (laughs) and he's and the father's just giving like a sermon in the middle of a battle like inside an armored car or something honey honey i'm just glad i'm here fighting for freedom and then there's a huge explosion behind him and he is literally killed during the taping of this i've been thinking that a lot of guys like us have given their lives in places like this um so we can all enjoy our freedom back at home people here can't even celebrate christmas you know they'd they'd be killed if they did i mean um, just keep playing Freedom's worth it. We're gonna win this. We gotta win this. Well, God bless you guys. I love you. Merry Christmas. And this video that they're showing to the whole audience yeah. at the school. It ends with it ends with him lying face down. His life dead. Was corpse, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Looking into the camera. Yeah. And then and then we're thinking like, okay, what does that have to do with why would you show that awful snuff video in front of this crowd? And then a one armed soldier stands up in the crowd and salutes. He salutes and then everybody like and then the cop gets up and salutes as well. And then the and, cuck principal runs on stage and, and he's he like just, what's and then and then he starts going 
<laughs> everyone everyone starts applauding you know what's so great about this scene is that when they're just watching the regular like the secular space play they're all applauding they're, they they're it. enjoying it yeah. so what was the problem it, yeah it takes a very hobbesian view of the mob <laughs> So that's not even the end because we still have to go back to the jail where Bob Revere's wife comes to visit him and then the yeah, he's, son he's, comes. Yeah, he's spent all of two hours in, in the slammer. And then the cop is just like, opens the door. He's like, Merry Christmas. Go home. You've had a rough night, which is how justice works. Right, so then he's ta- he refers to the, the what happened with the play and they're like, how did you uh, how did you see the play? It wasn't that wasn't on the news. And he's like, uh, he refers to, he's like, well, my, my cellmate gave me the walkie-talkie. And then the cop's like, there was no cellmate, Bob. Yeah. So, yeah, you yeah. know, that was actually a, a, a holy a holy spirit. An angel sent by God to make sure that, you know, he overheard everything that was happening at the local junior high school. So Bob and his family come out and they emerge on the steps of the police station. And what do they see? But the entire town has apparently, as a mass, moved from the school to the police station. <laughs> and they're all applauding. And then who's in the crowd but Hammerschmidt? With his, with his big cigar to show that he's evil. And he goes to the cop and he's like, well, are you going to arrest all these people? And the cop's like, huh, arrest the whole town. He's like, I thought you ACLU types were against prison overcrowding. And he's like, huh. And Hammerschmidt walks away defeated. (laughs) And that's basically the end of the movie. Well, there's a breaking of the fourth wall where the, where Bob Revere turns the camera and and is, you know, just like, Merry Christmas, everyone. Remember, freedom isn't free or something like that. Be ready to go to jail for when you too do domestic terrorism for, (laughs) for Christmas. And the perfect cherry on the top of the shit Sunday is that in the credits, we find out that the movie was Chuck Norris approved. Yeah. There's a big stamp that says Chuck Norris approved. This movie has three purple hearts, folks. (laughs) My fight isn't about colored lights or a tree on the city square. My fight is about freedom and taking back what has been stolen from us. We are losing freedoms one by one that our forefathers, our brothers in arms, and my son died for. It is time we stood up for what they died for, for what we believe in. Our rights are being destroyed perhaps forever. But don't you see, we're letting it happen. The thesis of the movie struck me as going against the grain of where contemporary conservatism was at. And I guess that has to do with it being a, uh, an evangelical Christian movie and a kind of social conservative movie. Fans of the show will know, uh, will have heard me refer to uh, this, sh- this podcast called Know Your Enemy that's hosted by Matt Sitman and Sam Adler-Bell. And they had a really good episode I highly recommend called The Rise of the Illiberal Right. And what it's about is basically the decades-long transformation of conservative politics away from emphasizing the language of majoritarianism, which is very much what this film we watched is pushing towards a kind of more minoritarian and kind of illiberal language. Basically, the narrative used to be in, in the 1980s, we conservatives, you know, God-fearing Christian conservatives, we are the majority and our voices are being suppressed. And there's been a gradual shift away from that as conservatives have lost the culture war. This came to a head recently with uh, a feud involving characters such as David French, Sorab Amari, who's somebody people probably haven't heard about. And uh, th- this whole debate, of all things prompted by a drag queen story hour oh, that was God. happening in San Francisco. So I just want to read from a piece Sam wrote for the outline called What's Left of Liberalism. 
um, which kind of runs through some of this stuff. So he says, to summarize in as few words as possible, early this year, the nominally ecumenical religious conservative outlet First Things published a series of pieces denouncing what they termed the dead consensus of libertarian conservatism, which with its civility, reverence for free markets of goods and ideas, and its willingness to fight the culture war within the supposedly neutral institutions of liberal democracy. In its place, these illiberal conservatives, most prominently Sorab Amari, the opinion editor of the New York Post and a First Things contributor, championed a politics of enmity, of fighting the culture war with the aim of defeating the enemy, this is a quote, and enjoying the spoils in the form of a public square reordered to the common good and ultimately the highest good. The right, as he would have it, has simply played too nice. Amari's invective against what he termed David Frenchism treated the National Review editor and conservative litigator David French as a synecdoche for a version of social conservatism which has sought to safeguard religious, i.e. Christian values, from the onslaught of cultural libertinism through polite argument in the public square, the courts, and the pages of conservative magazines. This, Amari has concluded, won't do. Social conservatives, Amari believes, are besieged on all sides by transgender radicals, sexual perverts, and hostile anti-clericalists. These enemies cannot be defeated through the bloodless proceduralism of classical liberalism, which he believes has led to this impasse between the demand of ever greater individual autonomy and the communitarian ethos of Christianity. Rather, social conservatives of moral fortitude should instead embrace, well, something else. And uh, I would encourage people to read the rest of the piece because, um, you know, that something else turns out to be very sinister indeed. Uh, it's really hard to see what conclusion you can draw from this argument other than instead of using the language of majoritarianism, uh, conservatives should fight for some kind of Christian theocracy. I think that's kind of the implication here. But in a way, uh, this makes the film we watched seem so, uh, so kind of, you know, charming yeah <laughs> because it's it, it's using this very uh this very outdated language of kind of moral majoritarianism and employing this absolutely ludicrous device of like this war on christmas which seems contrived even in the context of the <laughs> film and which you know is still paying lip service the idea that hey people of all faiths can you know can <laughs> celebrate or whatever yeah yeah well if you can't beat them join them i've had a real arc myself this episode and i'd like to say Merry Christmas, Luke. Does that trigger you? <laughs> Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. Next year, all our troubles will be out of sight. A merry little Christmas Make the Yuletide gay Next year all our troubles will be miles away Once again as it olden days, happy golden days of yours. Faithful friends who are dear to us will be near to us once more. Someday soon. 
we all will be together if the fates allow until then we'll have to murder through somehow Shining star upon the highest. 